Greetings, friends and brethren. Welcome to Voice in the Wilderness. I'm Don Noble of Pure Heart Ministries, and I welcome you today with exceedingly great joy. Last week, I talked to you about, well, we completed chapter four, and we actually did chapter five. But I really felt like I glossed over chapter five uh, too quickly. And I think it bears taking more time to dig into this a little deeper. I'm using the Full Life Bible Commentary to the New Testament by French Arrington and Roger Stronstad. And I I just feel that we just need a little deeper understanding of this chapter. Sometimes it's easy to gloss over things and not kind of really look at it a little deeper. And I feel like this chapter is important mostly because this is where we are in the church today. And I'll explain that as we go on. So, Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the instruction Paul has given us in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And I thank you, Lord, that you are bringing Uh, judgment to the house of God. I thank you, Father, that you are bringing holiness to the house of God. I thank you that you are cleaning up uh, the Christian community and bringing us to a place of reverence, fear of the Lord, holiness, and walking close with you. So, Lord, those listening today, I pray that, Father, they would have an ear to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, the church, in Jesus' name. Now, I do want to say that, I often say this, that when I have to give a hard saying, I always, you know, go back to the old Mary Poppins, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So if you would, take a spoonful of sugar before we dive into this so that you can handle this truth. This This is the reality of where the Corinthian church was. But I'm telling you, this is exactly where we are. Uh, And maybe we've even taken it up a couple notches in the culture that we live today. I'm going to be uh, reading the scripture from the New King James Version today. And what I'm going to do, this is a very short chapter. I'm going to read it. And then we're going to actually go uh, deeper into this chapter. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you can follow with me. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. As is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And are you puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you? For indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have I already judged as though I were present him who has done, who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorifying is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, <clears throat> excuse me, or a sister who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. So Paul has learned he's not at the church at this time. He is not in Corinth. As he tells us that he's there in spirit and he's heard, he says it's been actually reported to him that there's sexual immorality. And what was the sexual immorality? It was a man who had sex with his father's wife. And Paul makes this statement. He said, this immorality, it, it's, not even, it's not even named among the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles don't even do this. It's an abomination among the Gentiles, and yet here it's occurring in the church. <clears throat> and he says, you're, you're puffed up, you're arrogant, and you haven't even mourned. You're not even sad. You're not even grieved that the man who has done this deed has been taken away from you. So let me go from there. And um, so this whole passage, chapter 5, is talking about how do we discipline a sinning brother. And we can say a sinning sister. It doesn't matter the gender here, but in this case, it was a brother. Now, we can make a valid assumption that the woman was not a believer and therefore did not need to be censured by the congregation. And also, this sin was not incest because... uh, Incest is sex between um, blood relationship. It's a uh, uh, blood relationship between sexual partners. So this woman is the man's father's wife. It's not his mother, but his stepmother. And she is not, we can, from the scriptures, we can tell she's not called his mother So she must be his stepmother. It also sounds like the father had either divorced her or he had died. So Paul doesn't call this uh, sin. He doesn't call it adultery. If you look this up in the Greek, he's not using the word adultery. And adultery involves at least one married partner. So as Paul sees this problem, um, 
he calls it, he says, sexual immorality. It's, it, that's how it's translated. But it is the Greek word pornea. And pornea is where we get the word that we use today, pornography. So there was sexual immorality in the Corinthian assembly, in the Corinthian church. Now, in the New Testament time, pornea, that Greek word, included all kinds of illicit sexual activity. So it wasn't limited to this specific instance where the man is having sex with his stepmother, but was considered to include all illicit sexual activity. And the way it's phrased, a man has his father's wife, it's a euphemism for sexual union. So they they had sex. The present tense of the verb has indicates that it wasn't a one-time sin. This man and this woman continued to engage in sexual activity regularly. The Old Testament clearly forbade sexual activity between a man and his father's wife, a sin that was punishable by death. I want to take us to Leviticus. So if you want to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 8, I'm sorry, chapter 18. This chapter deals with the laws of sexual morality. Um, I'm going to drop down to verse, I'm actually going to start with uh, verse 6. So this is, uh, the Lord is speaking to Moses, and Moses is declaring this to the children of Israel It says, none of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Verse 8, the nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. The point and they have a kind of a a funny way of saying it is that um, you cannot have sexual union with that individual when they use the word the nakedness. Um, And it goes on to talk about other, you know, the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter begotten by your father. She is your sister. You shall not uncover your... So, It goes on and on and on talking about how uh, this is not acceptable, not acceptable at all. Um, Okay, let is, at the end of this chapter, Leviticus 18, it says, for whoever commits any of these abominations, and there's a whole list of, you know, having sex with uh, animals, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it goes into detail. It says, um, for whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among, uh, from among their people. And that actually means to be put to death. So anybody who commits any of these sins 
those people are going to be put to death. That's what that means. Shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore, you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. So we can see that Paul obviously is referencing Leviticus 18. And also uh, you can find that in Deuteronomy 22.30, Deuteronomy 27.20. So this sin that was committed in the Corinthian church was a sin punishable by death. And this conduct, conduct was so reprehensible that even pagan Gentiles, both Greek and Roman, were offended by it. Roman law forbade such activity even after the father's death. Now, that doesn't mean it didn't occur among them. It just says they condemned it. Now, don't you find it interesting that the pagans condemned it? They were offended by it. But here were the Christians in the Corinthian church, and they don't seem to be offended by it. Paul goes on to say, he says, you have become arrogant. Now, he already, he already gave them a, a, a lashing over their arrogance back in chapter 4. But um, he's saying, you know, you, you are in this self-exalted spiritual state where you think everything is permissible. And um, it's thought that maybe there was a bit of influence of Gnosticism, early Gnosticism. And I had talked to you about that, oh, geez, two years ago when we did the book of First John because John really spends a lot of time trying to come against this heresy that was in the church. Now, Gnosticism taught that all matter is evil, and some of its devotees believe that um, what they did with their bodies could not adversely affect their superior spiritual state. In other words, it was like the body was separate from their spirit. And so that may have been a little bit of the issue in the church at that time. We don't exactly know. Um, but the Corinthian church should have taken two actions in this very deplorable situation. They should have been filled with grief. They should have been, it, it was an occasion for mourning. That's why Paul references that. They were boasting instead of mourning. They should have been grieving that one of their precious members of the church had committed this horrible sin. And number two, if they had truly been grief-stricken, they would have disfellowshipped the sinning member by handing him over to Satan. Now, Paul, although the church didn't take any action, Paul took action. And he said, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm only with you in the spirit, but I'm telling you right now, I've already, uh, you know, as if, I, as if I were present, he said, I've already um, taken this situation in hand and um, I've already passed judgment on this fellow. Because you haven't passed judgment on him. You haven't criticized this immoral man. He says, I've already passed judgment. 
And he concluded that the man was guilty before God and had to be disciplined. So that's uh, what I actually want to spend a little bit time, a little bit talking to you about, about disciplining a church member. I don't think we even see this at all today in the church. I've been in the church, oh golly, 22 years, <laughs> 21 years. I've never seen this yet. I know people that uh, regularly committed fornication. I knew people that committed adultery. I did not see anybody being disciplined in the church. I saw um, others that uh, lived with um, other homosexual men, not that they engaged in it that I knew of, but they were living in a house with um, other homosexuals. So it, 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 this disciplining the church, um, Paul called for the exclusion of this unrepentant sinner from the community of believers. And, and that's really important. If someone is refusing to uh, repent, they have to be expelled from the congregation. Now, Paul uses the expression hand over to Satan. Um, if you remember... In 1 Timothy, it said, Some have shipwrecked their faith, Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. This is, this verbiage is the idea of excommunication. That means we expel you from the community of believers. And when that happens, that individual is returned to the dominion of Satan from which he or she had once been delivered because there's no middle ground for a recalcitrant, unrepentant, sinning believer. So nothing could be more decisive than Paul's concluding words, the very end of the chapter, his last word, expel the wicked man from among you. He then becomes like the pagans, vulnerable to Satan in a manner manner that Christians cannot. Satan for Paul was a personal spiritual being unalterably opposed to God and his people. The word in Hebrew, Satan, in origin means adversary. Um, so this sinning brother had to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And that... Uh, meant that, number one, he was going to be removed from fellowship. For the destruction of his flesh, it could have meant also um, possibly death. It could have meant grave physical sickness. And Paul will speak later to Christians who are uh, sick or will have died because of unconfessed sin. We'll we'll see that in uh, chapter 11. Uh, the death of Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira is often cited as, as an example of such destruction of the flesh. You may also think about Job, in which God allowed Satan to attack him physically, even though it was not punishment for sin. So this destruction of the flesh is the immediate consequence of expulsion from the community of believers. And although it's pu- punitive in nature, it is designed to bring the person to their spiritual senses 
Unfortunately, Paul doesn't explain how that might happen. But the goal is that the person's spirit will be, quote, saved on the day of the Lord. Now, uh, verses 6 through 8 emphasize the permeating effect of serious sin in a member's life on the entire congregation if it's not dealt with. Once again, Paul reprimands the Corinthians for their pride in not dealing with the problem. The immoral man needed to be expelled for his own good, but there is an additional reason, okay? There's an additional reason why you expel the person. Because he says, um, you know, don't you, that like yeast in dough, sin will spread throughout the congregation. And this is just like the proverbial rotten apple in the barrel. Eventually, the whole batch is going to be contaminated if the bad apple is not removed. Some suggest that the leaven in the Corinthians boasting as long as they continue to boast about their tolerance of sinful situations, that pride was really what was um, motivating them. So Paul says, don't you know that a little leaven will leaven the whole lump? In other words, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough, right? If you've done any baking at all, you know that a tiny little bit of yeast, it actually works through the whole batch. And what's it do? It makes it expand. It gets worse, gets bigger. But metaphorically, it would get worse in this congregation. So the whole congregation is affected if this issue is not dealt with. And this metaphor recalls the time of Exodus and the first Passover. If you look at um, Exodus 12, you'll read about that. And uh, the Moses is, is telling the people to prepare, you know, what's going to happen. And he um, tells them that they've got to get all the leaven out of the house, uh, period. And you've got to eat unleavened bread for seven days. Cannot be any leaven in the house. So even in Jewish custom today, um, leaven is removed from the house during the Passover season. You have to dispose of it, get it out of the house. So the Corinthians were commanded to get rid of the old yeast in order that they might be a new batch without yeast. And um, in fact, Paul says, you are the unleavened. What's he saying there? He, he's at, it, it sounds paradoxical, but um, they were unleavened. They were born again. They were cleansed from their sins. The old had gone, the new had come. But... They had to put it into action and they had to purify their community of the leaven that found its way into it. So, um, and we know that, that Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover sacrificial animal, right? His death coincided with the death of the Passover lambs. Um, Passover foreshadowed, including cleansing from sin and deliverance from death and bondage. And so in view of this, the church was exhorted, Paul included himself, to keep on celebrating the feast. But it's to be celebrated not with old yeast, which signifies what? Malice, Paul says, and wickedness, two closely related synonyms, but with unleavened bread. And what does that signify? It signifies sincerity and truth. Uh, involving the idea of purity. I want to share with you the word sincerity in the Greek, and I may not pronounce it exactly right, but 
ilikrenia is the Greek word for sincerity, and this is what it means. It means judged by sunlight. And the word alludes to oriental bazaars where pottery was displayed in dimly lit rooms. Unscrupulous merchants would patch cracked pottery or cover defects with wax. But intelligent buyers would hold up the pottery to the sun and judge its quality by the sunlight. So, ilicrenia, or the word sincerity, is transparent honesty, genuine purity, manifested clarity, and unsullied innocence. It describes one who does not fear thorough examination of his motives and intents because he has nothing to hide. Oh, 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 oh I just love that, don't you? Isn't that good because Paul I just want to read that again Paul said in verse 8 let us keep the feast therefore not with old leaven not with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth and this sincerity is this transparent honesty this genuine purity this unsullied innocence. It's a person, a sincere person is one who is not afraid of being thoroughly examined of his motives or the person's intents. Why? Because the person has nothing to hide. Okay. Um, the end of this chapter, Paul is talking about the people of this world, described as sexually immoral people, greedy people, swindlers, idolaters. And he's saying for Christians to separate themselves, com- excuse me, he's, he's not saying for Christians to separate themselves completely from such people, because you know what? That's not possible. We can't. <laughs> We can't separate ourselves completely from such people, people of the world. Why? Because we have to live in this world unless you want to leave this world. Um, And it's not desirable, desirable because we have to associate with them in order to proclaim to them the gospel. Like Jesus, uh, we are to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, we know that religious communities throughout history have felt a need to withdraw from society. Some um, communities have done that, like the Essene community, uh, known primarily from the Dead Dead Sea Scrolls, and they withdrew to the Judean desert to escape corruption of the world. Um, But sometimes, you know, you can you can draw away for a time, but it's it's good to come back. Christians um, are to withdraw not from the world, but from unrepentant Christians guilty of such overt sins. But when such attempts are resisted, exclusion from the community is the proper course of action. So uh, the instructions to the Corinthian church from Paul are relevant for the church today, any church in any place in the world. At all times, sin has to be identified for what it is, rebellion against God. And professing 
unrepentant Christians who persist in sinning have to be excluded from the fellowship in the community of believers. I just want to encourage you that I don't see that happening today, uh, but I think that it needs to happen because maybe that's why the Church of America, of Jesus Christ, is so compromised as it is today. Okay, we will start Chapter 6 next week. This is Don Noble. You can go to www.pureheart.today to listen to this podcast again. And you can write me, Pure Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 85, Valley Grove, West Virginia, 26060. Obviously, uh, I always encourage you to drop me a line. And if you um, feel led to support this uh, ministry financially, I would be grateful to receive uh, an offering from you. So you can send that to Pure Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 85, Valley Grove, West Virginia, 26060. I look forward to being with you again next week. Shalom, shalom. Peace be unto you.